Matthew chapter 19. And uh, let's, before we look, before we read, let's briefly pray together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us your words, and it's through your words that Christ is proclaimed. And as Christ is proclaimed, men and women believe in him. And that's what we pray for this morning, that we would all believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, so two weeks ago we looked at verses 16 to 22. And uh, I want to look at the next section, 23 to 30. But the next section only makes sense if you've read also about the previous section. So I'm going to start at 16 and read through to the end of the chapter. But we'll just look from verse 23 onwards. So verse 16, and behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many are those, many who are first will be last and the last first. So last time, two weeks ago, we we saw this young man coming up to Jesus with an important question. Uh, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And it's it's the kind of question that that people often have about their lives. Um, People ask those big questions. What does my life mean? What's my purpose in life? Where is my life going? And these are questions to do with, that go far beyond the here and now, or even any sort of future 
uh, development of your life on this earth. But rather look far beyond that. What about my life beyond this life? Is there more to life than this? And if there is, how can I make sure I get it? Whatever it is that may be beyond this life. And lots of people, and, and at least secretly, lots of people are asking that question all the time. They might never admit to it, but they're asking that question. What about my life in eternity? Where am I going? Now, one of the mistakes, and we looked at several kind of mistakes that could come up with this man, but one of the mistakes that this man made was, was thinking that he could do something to get it. Some task, some quest, some initiation ceremony or something that would actually get him uh, eternal life. And the answer is not that he should do some good deed so that he would get some sort of ticket into heaven, into eternal life. But rather, the answer for him and for us today is not about something that we do. But it's all about who we follow that will get us eternal life. It is all about Jesus. And will you commit yourself to follow Jesus all the days of your life? And if necessary, give away all that other stuff that you have, that you are resting on for all your security and your opportunity. Will you give all of that up and follow Jesus Christ? That's the message to this man. Now the details of that may be different for you this morning. For he may not ask you to give up all your possessions. But the principle is the same. Whatever you rest upon for security, for opportunity... For meaning, purpose. Are you willing to put it all to one side? To follow Jesus Christ. And if necessary, give it all up. Well, this man, instead of doing just that, he walked away sad. Declined the offer to follow Jesus. Because he couldn't let go of his life. The life that he had up to this point. He couldn't cast everything. Cast all his, all his hopes. All his future. All his eternal security. He couldn't entrust that to Jesus Christ and follow him. There was too much at stake for him. And so, after he walked away sad, Jesus now turns to his disciples in verse 23. So he turns to the twelve. And this is something of a postscript. He's, he's doing a, a kind of debrief with his disciples about what just happened. And he's teaching them about the meaning of what's just happened and the, significant, and the issues that have been raised. And he begins to talk about the danger of riches. Now, some people, when they, they look at this passage, um, they think this is the kind of passage where Jesus is talking about a moral issue. About the, the evil of riches. And it's very easy for somebody in this kind of position to say, well, you're all in the West. 
living in the West and you're all very rich, so you should all feel bad about the riches that you have. But that's not actually the point. The moral issue here, the issue here is not the moral issue of inequality, which is very common in our political discussion today, where the rich have us surplus over the poor and often take advantage of the poor. That's an issue, but it's not what Jesus is really addressing here. What Jesus is concerned about is spiritual and eschatological issues. Do you know that word eschatological? To do with eternity, the last things. Eschatos. What's going to happen after all all this passes. It's spiritual and it's eschatological. He is concerned about whether these disciples and anyone else who comes to Jesus is going to have eternal life. And that's the, that's the issue that he's been dealing with with this rich young ruler in which he was this young man was unwilling to accept. So I, I do, the, what the passage presents to us is some, some hindrances to obtaining the kingdom of heaven. So I do want to deal with the difficulties that riches present to us. Because Jesus uh, is very clear about it. Uh, in verse 23, Truly I say to you, so he's saying, Amen, truly. Uh, He wants you to listen carefully to what he's saying. And this is uh, a statement of authority. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And then with a note of humor, though it's a serious issue, he says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now he's It's a humorous comment to point out something ridiculous. Uh, Just in passing, uh, some people have thought over the years that the eye of the needle was some kind of gate in the walls of Jerusalem and, you know, uh, a camel could only get through it if it was unladen and unburdened. And preachers have tended to try and make a great deal out of this. There is actually no evidence that there's such a gate I think it's just a joke. He's pointing out something totally ludicrous. You know, a camel. <laughs> you ever seen a camel? Up close to a camel at a zoo or something? It's huge. Then you think of an eye of a needle, a tiny little thing. Trying to squash one through the other. What a ridiculous idea. And that's the idea. He wants you to laugh at it. And say it's a ludicrous idea. But it's also a ludicrous idea that it's easy for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's not that the Bible has something against people having money. Um, There are many characters in the Bible who were richly blessed materially. Um, Abraham, we studied Abraham a few months ago. Abraham grew... In power and authority. And all his flocks. And his flocks became so great that he and Lot had to part company. Uh, So he was a rich man. He was a man who had men who could fight for him. He became rich. 
And he was a man who was called a friend of God in the Bible. Or think of Job. Job the righteous man. And at the beginning of the book of Job, he's a rich man. And at the end of the book of Job, he becomes rich again. Under God's blessing. So it's not that riches in themselves are a bad thing. We could go on and on with examples. But some of those saints of the past were rich materially, wonderfully so. As well as some of them being very poor. So in a sense, richness or riches or poverty are kind of incidental to the kingdom of God. And the Bible has a great deal to say about wisely using money. It's important that we're careful with it. It's important that we make plans with it. You need to be wise in your dealings over it. Uh, Read the book of Proverbs. It's got loads to say about uh, wise dealing with money. Borrowing and lending are permitted amongst brothers and sisters, but are to be handled with care. So that money doesn't become your master or debt becomes your, doesn't become your master. And so on. So there's, there's a great deal about money. And the Bible isn't against riches as such. But wealth can be a snare. And the problem is not so much money itself as the state of the human heart as it responds to wealth. And riches. You see, the the human heart is full of sin, isn't it? Sin and corruption. And so when we get money, we get opportunity, we get power and authority. And that feeds the, the sinful human heart. We begin to take steps that we we ought to regret if we're not careful. You see, rich people, when they're trapped in their sin, become a danger to themselves and to society. And the Old Testament prophets have got a great deal to say about that. The Old Testament prophets speak of how wealth and power in the hands of sinners can lead to oppression of the poor and the denial of justice to the poor. And it can be a snare to you individually, where it holds you back. From worshipping the true God. And from following Jesus Christ. And that's what we've seen in this rich young man. That his wealth became so important to him that he couldn't respond to Jesus as, as he invited him to come and follow him. So the issue that Jesus is concerned about here is not that riches are bad in themselves. But rather in longing for it. You long for the things of this earth and you don't long for the God who has made you. And it's that that prevents a rich person entering into the kingdom of heaven because they have this idol, this God that they serve. Their own riches, their own wealth, their own comfort, their own pleasure, whatever it is. And I, I fear this is a more, more common problem in Christian churches than perhaps we realize in this country. I think it's easy for for people to give intellectual assent to the gospel. Mentally to say, yes, I believe it. 
But you can do that without ever loosening your, your little fingers on all of those riches that you may have. And it's easy to come to church and not have your little fingers taken off your desire for that wealth and to have that God in in your life. The simple truth is that such people who give mere intellectual assent or merely come to church may never have truly started to follow Jesus Christ. You see, the question for you and for me is, am I willing to do anything for Jesus Christ? Am I willing to give up anything for Jesus Christ? Am I willing to go anywhere for Jesus Christ? And the number of those are few. But let's move on. Dangers, dangers of riches. But Jesus says this to his disciples, and what's their reaction? They're astonished. Now, so this is the second issue. Why would they be astonished at Jesus' teaching here? It's not as though the disciples are nodding along with Jesus. You you and I, we can imagine being with Jesus and Jesus says something amazing to us and we all sit there and nod and think, wow, what an amazing teacher. Uh, But actually, the disciples didn't do that. Uh, They were astonished. They were shocked. Why would he say that? Why would you say it's hard for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven? And what is the problem here? I I think it's it's a very common one. It is that they believed that material wealth was the sign of God's blessing. And you may have met Christians like that, who believe that they're being really blessed because they have lots of material possessions and a good and healthy bank balance and investment portfolio. And there are Christians who think that if I don't have money, if I've fallen upon hard times, therefore God must be cursing me in some way or removing his blessing from me. And so there, there are even so-called pastors who preach this kind of thing. As though this is part of the Christian gospel. That they take advantage, these prosperity gospel preachers, who take advantage of poor communities, who take their money, who promise riches will come their way in this life. And you see these so-called pastors uh, jetting around in their jets or swooshing along in their limousines and appearing in their shiny suits before great crowds of people desperate for some sort of material relief. And these so-called preachers are only too happy to encourage them in this. And preach a false gospel to poor, desperate people. And the dangers, I think, of that kind of so-called ministry become obvious over time that when you have power and authority in that kind of position, and you don't know actually what the real gospel really is, 
then the sins of the human heart are given free reign. Let nobody say that doctrine doesn't matter. All sins can be traced back to false doctrine somehow or other. And the sins become clear in these so-called pastors and their excesses, their gluttonous excess, their sexual infidelity often, their domineering pastoral abuse, and so on and so on. There are endless examples of this now, perhaps more so in recent days, all of which dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, it is possible to be blessed material and still follow God as a faithful saint. But many disciples were not rich. Take the Apostle Paul, who had to endure suffering and privation. But in the midst of it all, he knew contentment because he had treasure in heaven. The Lord Jesus himself. And he was content to go through anything for the sake of Jesus. Friends, let's not think that to follow Jesus is the path to riches, still less that the path to riches is a sign that you and I are following Jesus. It is difficult for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. But let's not leave, that's very negative so far. Let's not leave matters there. Jesus doesn't do that. So let's listen instead now to the encouragement of Jesus. Because these disciples there, uh, understandably perhaps, thinking uh, that if, if riches are not a sign of God's eternal blessing, then who can be saved? Can anybody be saved? And of course the answer is clear once riches are cl- cleared away as a, possible, a sign of God's blessing. Because no one can be saved. But Jesus comes in very quickly with an answer about how anyone can be saved. With man this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. And this is the fundamental issue. Who is going to give eternal life? Who is going to give that gift of eternal life? And Jesus is clear, it's not going to come from you or anything that you do or that you are. Anything you do is only going to make matters worse. But in order for somebody to be saved, God and God alone has to do the saving. And the way that God does the saving is by bringing people to Jesus. To his son. This is what's happening with the rich young ruler. He is being brought to Jesus. And all the disciples have been brought to Jesus, aren't they? And some of them believe. And find eternal life. And God has done a work in their life. This is all a work of God. God does the saving. And what what God does is he so fundamentally changes someone from being orientated towards the things of this earth to being orientated towards the things of heaven. So that money, career, relationships, property, pleasure and so on, which were previously your orientation in life, now become incidental. Because you're orientated towards heaven. 
towards glory, towards Jesus Christ. So when you come to Jesus, there is a sense in which your whole life is upended, turned upside down. There are many things, after you come to Jesus, there are many things in your life that you want to get rid of and throw away. Maybe possessions that you have. Maybe things that you do. Maybe things that you love to do. You say, I I don't want to do any of that anymore. Because they hinder me from following Jesus. And there are many things you want to bring into your life so that they can help you follow Jesus all the more. So following Jesus may mean a complete change of career. Some of you may want to go to the mission field. Take that radical step and sell everything and go off to a mission field somewhere. Some of you may want to start giving more of your money away so that it's not a snare to you in following Jesus Christ. So that it serves the kingdom of God. And why does this orientation, this change in orientation happen? Well, Jesus begins to speak about, in verse 28, he speaks about the new world. The Greek word there is, it only, only appears here in the New Testament. Palingonesia. It means, it's, essentially means the regeneration. If you like the new heavens and the new earth. It is, when Jesus mentions it here, It's like a window into something. That actually when God acts to save someone, it's like a new world breaking into their life. In other places, it's different terms are used. Jesus talks about being born again for by the Spirit, John chapter 3. Or Paul speaks about us being new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. New creatures in Christ. And here he speaks about, and it's quite unusual for Matthew to speak this way, but he speaks about this new world, this regeneration, this new creation that's happening. And you and I, if we're Christians today, we begin to experience that new world. This is what is happening when the Spirit comes and brings us alive in Jesus Christ. It's like the new world breaking in upon us. One day it will come in all its fullness in the consummation when Jesus comes again. And there is a profound sense, therefore, that a Christian belongs somewhere else. We live in this world, but we're not of this world any longer. We belong to this new world, new heavens and new earth. And I'm afraid to say it, but you know, Christians do become kind of otherworldly. They should do. Not in an unhelpful way, although some people are sometimes, but uh, we become a kind of otherworldly set of ambassadors for this new kingdom. And that's what we become. That's why everything has to be different. So this is, a, this is a great encouragement for every Christian. Because being willing to give up all and follow Jesus has its costs for this world. 
uh, it may be hard. There are sacrifices to make. And, and Jesus recognizes this. So verse 29, he says, And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But Jesus is accepting that it's going to be difficult for Christians, for people to become Christians. You may have to leave your house, (laughs) your household. Uh, Sometimes when a person becomes a Christian, the rest of their family strongly objects. Some of you know that more deeply than we can ever imagine here in this country. Some of you come from situations where your family finds it offensive that you've become a Christian. Some of you, it will be a a career-ending move. And you have to give up a source of income. Some, Some of you will fall out with your brothers and sisters, your mother and father. As you become a Christian. Jesus recognizes all of that. But he's saying. What you've inherited. Is so much more wonderful. So much more wonderful. That there is a reward beyond what we can imagine. In Jesus Christ. And we even begin to taste the abundance of it here on earth. As we walk the Christian life. You see I remember as a student. In my late teens, before I came to faith in Christ, as I was considering the Christian faith, one of the big issues for me was, am I going to lose all my friends? You know, all I could think about for a long time was, what am I going to lose if I become a Christian? But over time, eternal life with Jesus Christ grew in my mind and my heart. So that it was the most desirable of things. It became so much more desirable than anything I could ever have in this life. And so eventually I had to capitulate to the Lord and uh, confess my sins and seek to follow him. And he was worth giving up all for. See now I've, when you become a Christian you have so many friends. (laughs) You discover there are friends all over the world. There are Christians I've known uh, all over the country and even in foreign countries. And it's blessed to know them and to be with them. And so Jesus Christ is no, no debtor to anyone. If you go and follow Jesus, he will never owe you anything. Because what he gives you is far more than you deserve and far more than you expect. A hundredfold, he will give you eternal life. And then finally, Jesus in verse 28 says, uh, speaks of the Son of Man, he speaks of himself as the Son of Man, sitting on the glorious throne in the future. And I think we can get an idea of what that might mean. Uh, This is Jesus ruling, the sheer glory and wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ, sitting on the throne, ruling and judging uh, the new heavens and the new earth. I think we can get that. He's the one who's died for sin, the sins of his people, risen from the dead, and now is ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he rules in victory. So it's all it's glorious. But he also says, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, twelve tribes, it seems to mean that 
the fullness of the people of God. Twelve thrones seem to refer to the twelve disciples having a key role. Uh, But it's it's also applied to all those who follow Jesus. Which is a number far more than twelve. So it's hard to know exactly what this means. I think it's some kind of symbolic representation of what the future will be like. Most likely Jesus is using that symbolism to convey something of the complete way in which he and his disciples will rule in the new heavens and new earth. And whatever it is, it will be great and marvelous and glorious. Now isn't that worth giving up all for? This world's that this coming world that is free of sin and corruption, where worship, the worship of God is our greatest joy, where Jesus is at the center in all his glory, is that worth giving up all for? I'll just finish with a quote from a well-known missionary, uh, Charles Thomas Studd, C.T. Studd. was a pioneering Anglican missionary to China and then to India and then to Africa and he was also an accomplished cricketer he actually played for England in that first match where England lost the ashes and defined what the ashes were the bale, was it the bales that were burned in shame or something, I don't know, when England lost to, to Australia but he was part of that team CT Stud. they didn't lose because of him but he was age 22 at that point. And at age 25, C.T. Studd, he was already a missionary at this point, but he, he inherited a fortune from his father, um, which is about 30,000 pounds, which, you know, 120 years ago, 130 years, or 140 years ago, was a huge amount of money. Um, but he gave away 90% of it. Uh, some of it to George Muller, you may remember the, the man who ran the or- orphanages, a Christian man in Bristol, and to other missionary agencies. He gave it away. Because he believed that Jesus Christ was a man worth following and giving up all for. My career, in cricket, my, my wealth and money. And he went off to the mission field. And perhaps his most famous quote is this. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. That's what Jesus is calling us to. To sacrifice everything of this world to follow him. Don't be held back by riches. Don't be held back by the things of this world. But just give up everything and follow Jesus. Whatever that may entail. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this wonderful passage. Thank you for Jesus' clear teaching and reminder that there is blessing in abundance if we follow Jesus Christ, that our treasure is in heaven and it's forever. So help us to believe in him and trust in him and seek his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.